0: It's Christmas, it's pod Many happy holidays to everyone listening to pod all the Squires of the Slice, and beyond. Um boy, what a fantastic year it's been. What an incredibly tiresome, tedious, difficult year it's been. But uh here we are, inching ever closer to the last day of the year. Uh, I hope you guys had a great holiday celebration. I hope uh, there was good food. Um, I hope you got into fisticuffs with your entire family and it became a royal rumble uh, and the the police had to break out the pepper spray. That's my wish for you, and I hope it's come true. Um, Let's see here. Before we hop into some really fantastic questions, yet again, this is like five weeks straight of fantastic, really thoughtful questions that I'm excited to dig into. Before we do that, I realized I never actually talked about the Action Figure of the Month Club December 2022, the last figure of the Action Figure of the Month Club uh, ever, quite frankly. We never went through that, right? So much going on in December. So um, let me break down what it is in my mind. And now people have had some time with it. I'm sure a few people have um, waited until Christmas Day to open it up. So hopefully, if that's the case, um, this isn't a spoiler for anybody. If you, for some reason, are holding out till the last day of December to open this club figure, uh, maybe just fast forward or stop listening altogether uh, until you open it. So um, this is called the Downstar Patrol. And I think that already... Just name alone, you know it's infused with a very heavy weight to it, right? So, what is Downstar? Uh, for those who are newer to of the Slice, last December was Downstar Saima. And um, that was a pretty significant uh, figure. It was an incredibly significant short story that went along with her. And also represents aesthetically a big departure for me. I. I don't know where the idea came from to do a sort of black, white, and gray version of a figure. Uh, it is kind of the antithesis of my color theory for this entire project. But uh, all the same, I felt the strong urge to do it and uh, save that as the last Sima that rolled out that year. And um, I think it worked smashingly. People seem to really... Dig the sharp contrast in that figure compared to every other figure that was released that year. Um, there's a three part short story on the website called Elegy, Part 1, 2, and 3. And in Part 3, Saima goes to Downstar. And uh, she has a pretty startling discovery there. I won't ruin it for you. Uh, if you guys are ever sort of curious about the story behind Knights of the Slice, if you're again newer to the brand, You can always go to ToyPizza.com or NightsTheSlice.com and then click on the Story So Far tab. This will show you an entire breakdown of every piece of narrative that has sort of officially been released. Some of them require purchases, like the full-length comic books and graphic novels and eBooks. but the majority of the story can be consumed for free on the website. And uh, if you're curious about Downstar and you want to know more, I would definitely recommend you check out the Elegy story arc in three parts. Um, I'm very proud of it. I think it's pretty fantastic. But uh, more to the point, I really love the setting of Downstar. I think it's a lot of fun and rife with possibilities. So, um, I much like the Downstar Saima from last year, so too was this. Patrol, not necessarily created as uh, its current final form, as the Downstar Patrol, Um, both these stories or these names sort of came to me last minute. Now, I was faced with the challenge this previous year of closing out the year with something big and spectacular, and given that I was not going to be able to get new product in time to finish out the last quarter of the year, I had to kind of get get creative and build what is probably the most expensive club figure so far in that it has so many different accessories and bonuses. Uh, I really just added as much value as I could to these. Um, so, for those who have opened them, you get three Cherubium heads and they do have white deco to kind of give them this... Uh, aesthetic that matches quite closely the Saima from last year. And then also, uh, because that Saima was black, white, and gray, you get uh, a gray cloth jacket. Now, a couple people have gotten a peek at this jacket already. I, there was one live stream we did during the fundraising process for Chromega, And during that live stream, I said, anybody who signs up right now while we're streaming will get a free bonus gift. And I held good to that promise, and sent those people this free Chrome uh, I, I shouldn't say Chrome jacket, but it is a jacket that will fit on a Chrome mega sized figure. Um, so they got a little peek at that early, and then the remainder of them I held to utilize in the club. So it does recreate that black, white, and gray color scheme of people that are on Downstar. Also in the package uh, are two stickers. One of them, a hollow foil sticker. This was done by our good friend, Gobbly Print. I showed him what the figures were going to be. I gave him the basic concept, and he created a truly fantastic-looking spread utilizing these three characters. Um, this is a variant month. $50 patrons got the plain white base body and the plain black base body and then it was sort of at random what $30 tier people would get. I will make the spares available to patrons in the near future. I I can't promise I have time to do that prior to the year ending, but it is on my to-do list for you guys, so you can rest assured I will get to it and make good on that. Um, Also included are a fully painted set of the six inch uh, swappable heads. Of Rex Gannon and a sort of helmeted type character done in my style. Um, These work on some six-inch scale figures. Probably your best luck is utilizing um, uh, Marvel Legends figures. Specifically, it seems like these fit best on the uh, kind of Disney Plus TV show Marvel Legends figures with the... US Agent working particularly well and fitting these well. Some of these heads will not look great on everybody. You kind of got to play around a little bit to find which ones work well. But when you find one that works well, man, it really snaps into place. And I wanted to sort of get the word out in a bigger way about these conversion heads. And I thought what better way than to, you know, put these out there for the patrons and also as a way to kind of thank you guys for this year of support. Now, as for the significance of the Downstar Patrol, as for what they are looking for, what are they on patrol doing? uh, I'm not ready to reveal that yet. I do have something in mind. It does uh, bookend nicely with another story that has some loose ends hanging out there, for those that have been paying attention. But um, we'll talk about that in the new year. In the meantime, uh, I hope you guys like it. I know uh, everybody that sort of collects the cherubium heads can't seem to get enough of them. I'm certainly one of those people. I want to see these animals in every color imaginable. Um, so thank you again for being patrons. Uh, 2020 is going to be pretty foundationally crazy and well worth your money when we switch to the two packs every two months. So um, the gears are already well in motion for next year and I myself am super excited. I can't wait to start putting these together. Okay, our first question on Patreon from Brett Barnacle: What colorway from other Glios creators would you like to see on some of your creations? Not making suggestions by any means, just something fun I daydream about on my end. Uh, two come to mind for myself, it's Hades Rift Killer or the Burning Colorway from Godbeast for Chromega? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, Thank you, Brett. This is a totally fair question. Um, I think historically I have have purposefully stayed away from other color schemes, and I've done that to differentiate Knights of the Slice in the world of Glyos, but also in Independent toys in general, right? I feel like um, The thing I'm offering is Not the plastic figures themselves, right? You can get plastic figures anywhere You can get them a lot cheaper quite frankly with a lot more articulation from any other company You can get them with the attached intellectual property of characters. You've loved your entire life so what brings people to the Knights of the slice in my hopes and dreams is They enjoy the creative vision I've put together. And that, uh, a big portion of that creative vision is the color story. It is the selection of hues that I pick to reinforce ideas or themes about a character. And uh, I think I have built a very good, very strong color story for Knights of the Slice in the greater toy. And I mean, why not even the greater art world, right? Um, so for me, I have always kind of dodged, um, leaning on other creators' color schemes. Now, there's exceptions to that, of course. You know, I think PJ has come up, uh, Spaced Out Designs has come up with fantastic new types of plastic. Um, you know, like, I, I utilized his sort of chipped stone look for a Chicanne figure we did long ago, Gargoyle Chicanne. Uh So, it's not a sort of, like, uh, absolute rule by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think I, I tend to shy away from using other makers' color schemes. I also tend to shy away from homages, even though I am a complete hypocrite there, and I will do homages from time to time if it is meaningful to myself. Um, But, you know, I I think in independent toy making, your story is all you have. You know, what makes you unique. So, if you're utilizing a lot of He-Man colorways, your story gets dwarfed by the legacy of He-Man. Or if you do a lot of Star Wars uh, colorways, your story is put on hold while people appreciate that figure for its Star Wars trappings. And I'm not sort of be smirching anyone. I'm not throwing any mud here. I think it's it's perfectly legitimate to do those things if they are meaningful to you as an artist, if they make you happy, if it's a toy you really want to own. Uh, but for me, I feel like I'm standing here seven years later because I made the harder choice to develop uh, standalone ideas when I can. And, you know, I, I think that's very important to me. We're going to touch on this a little bit later on. There's a great Peter Chung question. And this kind of dovetails nicely into that. But, um, you know, nothing against sort of utilizing this familiar color language amongst other creators. But for me, it's it's sort of less compelling because that figure then becomes something other than my own. But, uh, you know, just for fun, as a thought exercise, gun to my head, I would probably pick the Scarabite um, color scheme. I, I don't actually know... If this was developed by the God Beast War O'Neill proper, but I've always loved that color scheme. I think it, you know, works relatively well within the wheelhouse of Knights of the Slice. Um, but again, it would be sort of it would diminish my narrative to utilize that because I would want to sort of create an entire new character behind that color and have sort of either conscious or subconscious rationale for why it is this way and utilizing things that other people have done uh, that can sometimes for me kind of create a, a, an interference if you will doing a little house cleaning and scooting over to the discord to uh, pick up a couple random questions that were thrown out there and throwing them in this episode uh, we got a question from i believe our buddy john ortiz will the other variants be available to patreons from action figure of the month club as I stated in the intro, yes, absolutely. And then from our friend Thomas Bucci, would you ever consider doing a build station drop of all the Night of the Slice molds and accessories shot in clear PVC so we can custom paint or dye them to our liking? So that's Thomas's question. I'm gonna hop back to Patreon and I'm gonna ask Brent Lawson's question, which both of these kind of combine into my answer. From Brent on the Patreon, Can we see more translucent material styles with glitter or swirls in the figure? Chromega and the Meat Ambassador come to mind. Amazing figures, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you too, Brent. So, when it comes to translucent, when it comes to glitter, when it comes to swirl, all the gimmicky plastics, uh, less is more. I understand these are very aesthetically appealing and these tend to be better sellers for me than a fully painted figure, however, um too much spice ruins the dish. These should be rare occurrences to hold their perceived value. I could very easily just be running clear and glitter and all these and glow in the dark all the time, but I choose not to because again, the story has to come first with this line. That means painted figures with uh, you know a color theory behind it. It also means material style and material plus figures that push the narrative forward, and things like glitter and clear and things like that. Harder to kind of incorporate into a narrative, um, so to speak. There's a reason there's no real reference in the Pangaea Island stories to Nebula Chromega because at the end of the day, I just couldn't fit it in there. There was no. Uh, easy, low-hanging fruit reason for the character to appear this way. We could, you know, have our own uh, theories about that. Maybe it's him as he appears in the Vector, or when he's astral projecting into space. You know, there's there's fun stuff still there, but uh, not always the easiest thing to sort of accomplish narrative-wise. The other thing is, clear especially, it's not something I run all the time, even though it is very pretty and nice to look at, because in the world of Knights of Slice, clear things have to have a reason. You know, the original sort of um, classic knight that was the stealth variant of teal representing his special powers. So I've attempted to have kind of a story rationale for anything that, uh, anytime I utilize these sort of specialty plastics. In regards to an entire unpainted set that could live on the store and be, you know, a permanent fixture for customizers and things like that, uh, this is problematic in many different ways. Um, as it was sort of pointed out on the Discord by Eric Valverde, um, it, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually quote him directly because he said it better than I could, uh, that would take up crucial space in the production rotation, meaning other items would have to be put on hold. And this is entirely correct. To run every single figure I have in a single color uh, would mean I am delaying all of the other designs that I have and I want to do. And, you know, at this point, we have, what, 13 figures? So running each and every one of them would mean almost for an entire year's worth of inventory, I would be stuck with just those unpainted styles. The other reality is not every tool is in production shape. These tools get rotated out, they get polished, they get buffed, they get put into storage when they're not in use. They get sort of uh, finessed and tweaked. So not every single figure can be uh, put into production on the turn of a dime. The final point is, um, I have run every figure in a certain style in the past, and that was our sort of color change uh, versions. I-, I I do believe. Maybe Desert Rat didn't get run in that. Uh, Might have been he was sort of still in production or being debuffed at that point. But uh, I did try a multi-figure set with a unifying color and, more to the point, a gimmick plastic with the color change. Uh, That did not do well. And it was was probably, I, I wouldn't call it a failure, but the the sort of unforeseen consequences, consequences which i've outlined here with you know taking an entire slot of your production having inventory sit in your warehouse taking up space having that cash unutilized all these problems became apparent to me after that little experiment now granted the size of nice of the slice fans as a contingent is much bigger at this point that was pretty early in our existence but uh, I learned enough lessons from it that it is something I'm, I'm very gun-shy about doing again. Um, the final point I'll make is uh, customizing is a small portion of our overall business. Now, uh, that's not to diminish the people that make customs because I think they do fantastic work, but the average consumer the idea of customization or an unpainted figure is less appealing than, uh, you know, a fully painted figure. And I have at this point seven years of data to kind of back up what the one or two time customer, the casual fan, uh, what are they purchasing? It is almost always a sort of debut figure, a figure with full paint and um, very little else. You know, customizing is a niche of a niche and uh, it is not necessarily widely embraced by the majority of our customer base. Next up, we've got a question from Thomas Jonte, and I wanna just call out Thomas Jonte, uh for being an absolute mensch this past year. Uh, Thomas has helped us greatly with Twitch Uh, Getting us set up on there, helping us find our legs a little bit. He's raided the channel. He's served as a moderator and uh, just a a completely selfless dude who really has, uh, you know, helped us sort of embrace this new frontier of, you know, I guess uh, this greater project. So big shout out to Thomas Jonte. Always happy to see his name pop up when there's uh, orders coming in. And uh, you guys should actually follow him on Twitch, for sure, at tsjonte, uh, twitch.tv slash tsjonte. Um, also, before I hop into his question, I want to go on a quick side jag, because this is my pod, and I can do that, quite frankly. You're powerless to stop me. Um, Twitch, right? This is a newer thing. This is something that not all of our audience has embraced, and, and frankly, I don't blame them. But... I've been having a lot of high-level conversations, let's say, regarding Twitch, regarding a couple projects brewing in that space, and I've been talking, I've slowly kind of been creeping and oozing uh, my toe back into some consulting work, helping people that I really like get connected in the ecosystem of brands and big companies and entertainment and things like that. I'm sort of begrudgingly doing it because I don't like that cesspool but I do want to help good creative people navigate those waters where I can so I've been having a lot of these conversations with uh, marketing firms and brands and people in spaces that you know I guess the less I say the better in any case almost none of them understand twitch a few of them have never heard of twitch uh, but when I lay out what the landscape is like, that there's 11 million channels on there, that the average twitch viewer is watching three times longer than the average YouTube viewer, uh, that you know, uh, younger generations are essentially spending all day long with people their age who are making content, which is something that has never happened before. Um, you know, you, you start to see and understand, there's a, there's a big shift happening here in consumption and entertainment and what constitutes entertainment. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about it, and, and for me, uh, it's hard for me to go back to watching just a regular television show, right? Um, I find the, the experience of Twitch where you are watching something, there's a host on screen, you are sort of in a community experience, digesting something. There's a chat, zooming past. There's emojis flying on screen. There are the audience is interacting with the host and the creators. Um, it, it's it can be overwhelming for sure. Uh, if you're a little if you're wired a little bit differently, it could be very appealing to you if you need a lot of stimulation going on, which I guess I'm guilty of. Um, But I do think that there's kind of no going back to, uh, I guess, broadcast television in the way it's been. I think Twitch is the promise of the future of television, like we imagined when we were kids. You know, we thought by now it would be all holograms and you'd actually be in the TV shows interacting and, you know, Lord knows what what else. But I think Twitch is kind of the closest thing to TV 2.0 that uh, that we have. Now, that's not to say Twitch as a platform is always going to be the home of this idea of streaming and hosts and interacting. There will probably be a better form of it at a certain point. But it's interesting to me. I, I do see this as, you know, a new, a new shift, a new paradigm shift, as I said earlier. And while I am kind of on the, you know the older end of the Twitch audience, and I, I'm learning a lot of the jargon and how these things work and what what the hell people are talking about in chat, that can sometimes be a bit obtuse. Uh, I think it's worth doing because, for me, this is where the excitement is, and um, there may never be a Knights of the Slice TV show, right? There may never be a Knights of the Slice animated series or theatrical film, but Once a week, there is a Night of the Slice-based program that you can watch, and you can watch live, and you can watch for free, and you can be a part of and interact with. And while that may seem inconsequential at this point, I I think it's actually something unique and something special. And I fully expect other brands to follow this at some point. I'm sure Hasbro will launch a Twitch channel, and they'll have some mediocre talent that you know, are sort of put in a very small box with what they can say and do. I mean, they've already adapted this with their live streams and their Hascon announcements and, you know, all of that stuff. But, um, you know, I think we're in a frontier sort of mode right now. This is largely unexplored. Nobody else, no other toy companies I know of are in this space. And frankly, none of them have the freedom to do what I do when I'm doing these live streams. So, just a couple thoughts that were sort of rattling around in my head lately, uh, especially in light of me trying to synthesize and talk about this with people outside of our little community, trying to convey and communicate the importance of Twitch. Um, So, you know, just some random thought diarrhea I thought I'd splatter upon you guys. Anyways, back to the Thomas Jonte question. What happens to the Robo Force molds? Can they be used if they aren't for those characters? Uh, so before I weigh in on this, uh, I want to say largely I'm not going to weigh on the, weigh in on this, right? Because I don't have any inside information. Uh, you guys should absolutely feel free to send John Kent and Toy Infinity a question about this, and you know maybe he'll he'll answer you guys. Uh, what I am prepared to speak on. Is my experience with intrinsic characteristics in licensing and this is a I I will give you an example so when I worked at New Line Cinema we were doing a pachinko machine in Japan for the mask Uh, we did not have the likeness rights to Jim Carrey to utilize in this pachinko machine so the Japanese company, had to develop a Stanley Ipkiss character that did not look like Jim Carrey, but uh, looked like the character Stanley Ipkiss. What are his intrinsic qualities, right? We think of Stanley Ipkiss, if you've seen Mask. Um, he's a nerd. He's, he gets kicked around a lot. He's a simp. Uh, he's um, he's a soy boy. Yeah, right? Um and you can create a character based on those characteristics that's not Jim Carrey. And that's what they did. So, you know, he he looks somewhat similar. He's just kind of a boring-like guy. Uh, but it gets the point across it does not interfere with Jim Carrey and his likeness, and they get to utilize that character within their pachinko game. I'll give you another example. Uh, working at, again, New Line Cinema on Lord of the Rings, a German company is going to create these little desktop icons from Lord of the Rings. This was sort of pre... This is early days of Instant Messenger, so these were like animated GIFs that would just pop up on your desktop and do a little dance, cast a little spell, and then disappear again. Um, Nothing that's kind of utilized nowadays. I mean, I guess like an an animated emoji would be the closest thing. But uh, they were designing these. These were sort of pretty small, pixelated, little pieces of art uh, they used the intrinsic character features you know Gandalf's hat Gandalf's staff his pipe they did not utilize anything intrinsic to the actor itself there was no Ian McKellen likeness nor would that sort of uh, be applicable to such a small you know arrangement of pixels anyway so now let's take that example and let's Do a theoretical where we apply that to manufactured product. Uh, I go to a factory and they say, hey, we used to make the mask action figures in the 90s and we have all of these steel tools and we're just going to throw them away unless you have some use for them. So I take a look and I say, okay, well, this is a character in a zoot suit or this is a character in a tuxedo. we could tool new heads for them and we could utilize the bodies and this arguably has no sort of intrinsic characteristics of Jim Carrey or the actor who played Dorian, uh, you know, or the sort of specific IP that these were once used for. Um, legally does that hold up? Eh, pretty dicey. I actually probably wouldn't take that deal. But you start to see that there are character traits, and there, are, you know, physical traits, and then there are specific intellectual property traits. Um, so, you know, I, again, I don't have any information about Toy Infinity and their deal and things like that. So, you know, I'm not even going to bother to speculate on that. But having had firsthand experience with um, something similar to this, it would really come down to how that deal is structured and if, you know, the unique parts that were tooled for the Roboforce Onel line, if those are intrinsic to the character and the IP or not. I think that that's the ultimate question that uh, would have to be asked. And again, you know, you, you guys should feel free to uh, check out Toy Infinity and uh, drop them a line. Gordon McKinnon Hall says, No question, just wanted to say thanks for an awesome year of Knights of the Slice. Hope you get some downtime and more figure drawing in as the year closes out. Thank you, Gordon. Uh, Always nice to hear from you, my friend, and I I hope the same for you. Gordon, uh, by the way, has, you know, since coming into Knights of the Slice, really dedicated himself to drawing and sketching and that being his craft. And if you go back and look, he has progressed incredibly well the man is very dedicated to you know working at this skill and building it up and i think he's a success story so if any of you are struggling creatively you don't have a path you can sometimes feel lost just do what gordon does just try to draw every day and you will get better so uh thank you my friend and happy holidays to you as well moving along, we got some more great questions here. Jonathan Ortiz, thank you for sharing the interesting interview with Peter Chung. I'm interested to hear your takeaways from that interview, specifically why you make art, painting, drawing, music, prose, etc. Are all made for the same reason, or is each art form a different reason for creating? Merry Christmas, and here's to an amazing 2022. Uh, thank you. This is this is a really good, sort of thoughtful question. I guess... Um, The unifying reason for any art form that I do is there's no reason, it's a compulsion. I don't have a choice. I have to express myself in this way. Whether it's uh, jotting down and recording a little tune, whether it's filling up a sketchbook page, whether it's going to a life drawing class and, you know, recreating what I see in front of me. Whatever the case may be, I don't have a choice. This is a demon I'm trying to exorcise. And the only way I can do this stuff, the only way I can articulate what's going on inside of me is to put pen to paper or to, you know, send MIDI notes to GarageBand. It is not optional for me. And as the great John Green said, humans have been scribbling for so long that art is not optional to them. You know, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but... um, It's true. You know, even when we were living as hunter-gatherers with way more concerns and way more things trying to kill us than comfort, uh, we were still scribbling away and perfecting this craft. So to me, regardless of the avenue I'm doing it in, uh, it is like a furious storm inside of me that has to be expressed. It is at times very unpleasant, but I do think that it makes for very beautiful things. The biggest takeaway for me, from what Peter Chung said, was, you know, that, and I think I shared this when I first recommended the pod, uh, when he saw people's portfolios and there were pieces where they were looking to please an audience and it automatically turned him off. And, and that really resonated with me. And I think that that's part of the reason I've struggled to have as big of an audience as other people. Right, because I I don't make stuff for anybody but me, and possibly, you know, a, a handful of my friends. I, I still have a group chat with uh, my two best friends from childhood, Bobby and Josh, and I'm still sending them stuff that I come up with. I, sh- I show them stuff early, and really like that's my audience. Right at the end of the day, that and Matt Dowdy and a couple other friends, Mark Mosman. You know, I, I'm I'm making stuff for myself. And because I'm so close with these people, it is also for them. But there is really no thought beyond that to a wider audience. And I think that's why my stuff catches on so late. I think that's why, you know, crowdfunding is always steady and dependable, but never skyrockets. It's because I'm not doing stuff the way you're supposed to when you're making product. I'm not catering to an end consumer. I... Just expect that my my end customers are going to be intelligent, like I am, and they're going to get this stuff eventually. You know, it is kind of a leap of faith in that regard. I think also a lot of this comes from having worked for so many other people and so many other companies, both on the toy design front, but also in licensing, where you are selling properties to distributors or poster manufacturers or whoever else. I spent a very long time taking somebody else's IP and handing it over to a partner, and all of that is solely focused on the end consumer consuming it and loving it, right? The majority of my career for other people has been that premise, make something that people will buy. And so... It's no surprise that Knights of the Slice is the anti-example of that. I kind of go out of my way to piss people off in some respects, at least initially. I know I will win them over, or they're just going to pass altogether, but, you know, there is an impulse in me to go the opposite direction of what I perceive being an easy sell or what I perceive people wanting. I think it's also fair to say that music is kind of a an interesting and unique avenue of expression right? Because I I have no expertise there. This is something quite foreign to me in many respects. Uh, Using a sketchbook I've been doing since, you know, I could hold a pencil. Uh, Using Photoshop is something I've been doing since Photoshop debuted. Like, these are skills I have decades utilizing. When it comes to music, this is something that's always been obtuse and elusive to me. I've tried many times to, like, start a band or buy a guitar or teach myself and almost always ended in frustration me selling all the equipment I had bought Um, with the pandemic I didn't really have a choice there was no place to go I was stuck here so it kind of grew into this experiment and it does for me provide a very unique form of expression because I don't know how to articulate an idea so the Music itself is taking shape in front of me, if that makes sense. So if I wanna design a toy, I have an idea in my head, I know how to translate that onto a piece of paper, give it to a sculptor, give it to a factory, and in the end result, I have that physical thing manifested as was thought in my brain. When it comes to music, it's the opposite process. I press a key, I hear a certain note, it's not what I expected, but I follow that note to the next note and then I layer a drum on it, and then I layer a vocal on it. And it is, there's no planning whatsoever because I don't speak the language. I don't know how to manipulate these things in a manner that uh, is shaped around my thoughts. So it's kind of like flowing in the opposite direction. And uh, I gotta tell you, it's very thrilling. Uh, You know, It has been a very meaningful form of expression for myself, even though clearly I'm struggling to Uh, utilize the medium. But I'll tell you this much. Having had such a concentrated couple years fiddling with music in the basement and then coming upstairs, sitting down and doing a life drawing class, the drawing is so much easier, right? It, It comes so much more naturally. My drawing has improved a thousand percent from two years ago. And that is because I am creatively pushing against this huge friction, which is trying to understand music and then coming back around to a very safe, very understandable format, which is a blank sketchbook page and the brush in my hand. So you know, I, I don't think any of that is a coincidence. I think these, these things are sort of moving in Congress with one another. Um, you know, if we, if we zoom out even further, as Peter Chung said in his interview, The artist's job is to communicate, right? And so any attempt at artistic communication, I feel makes you better at any other medium of communication, at any other medium of artistic expression. So, you know, this pandemic has been terrible in many ways, but if there's a silver lining for me, it's been that I've come to understand these things and I've had the time and the space to just focus on expression in general, communication in general. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's sort of like rising tide lifts all boats. Uh, I, I see that happening for myself. And, you know, if any of you have projects that you're very much trying to, you know, toil with, um, I do recommend having another creative outlet that's not just playing video games or being on a screen but that sort of utilizes a different part of the brain because I I do think it feeds back into the main project and kind of makes you articulate yourself better. So that was a very (laughs) long and esoteric roundabout way of answering a pretty simple question, but I I like this question and and thank you. Next up, we got our friend Matt Connolly uh, probably decorating a cactus with lights and bobbles, if I'm not mistaken. Thank you, Jesse, for another thrilling year. When do you think we will see Diver surface in 2022? Um, Boy, (laughs) it feels like it's going to be a lifetime from now. Um, The only thing I'm prepared to say is that, with luck, Diver will debut in 2022. There are scenarios where it does not, and it it gets pushed out and delayed. I, I don't think that's likely to happen. I don't think that's a medium outcome, but uh, it is distinctly a possibility. So I, I sort of don't even want to jinx it at this point. I believe the campaign called for a 12-month turnaround. I I, I would like to think we can make that. I think it's feasible. Um, but beyond that, I'm very reticent to say much more because, <laughs> uh, you know, these things tend to go sideways, but um, I think we will see it in 2022. Zeroing in beyond that, uh, I don't know that I can. Next question comes from Charlie Pope. Given how certain characters are coming back in unique ways, like Teal as blank, Death Knight being a variant of Alexander, I think, have you always planned for them to come back as these incarnations? Does that mean Lime may ever see a return? By the way, I'm still rooting for Alexander. Happy holidays, my friend. Thank you, happy holidays to you too. It's interesting, a lot of people feel the urge to support Alexander as a fictional character, right? Um, what I think you see in the world of Knights of the Slice currently, or what I've hopefully constructed, is three paths, right? And what we see is, Alexander, a totalitarian dictator. We see the world as it is, emblematic with mega corporations like Fred Foods that sort of circumvent any rule of law. And then we see Beowulf and his team of outcasts and misfits who uh, acknowledge that they commit murder, but uh, sort of s- uh, share the profits of spycraft and assassinations with the community at large. So there are sort of three exaggerated futures laid out there. And it is interesting to see which one people sort of lean towards or uh, pick up and endorse. Um, I also think it's interesting because all three of those have to have an intersection at some point. There's going to be a reconciliation between these three very different polarities and their worldviews and their sort of uh, moral thrust, if you will. Um, but to, to get back to the initial part of the question, um, there was not... I would not say there was a intentional plan for characters to come back in these new versions. It almost always is a sort of sporadic discovery for myself. Uh, typically, it's when I'm sitting in the workshop laying out all these spare parts I have and just kind of doing builds and feeling my way through what these builds make me think of or what they remind me of I absolutely always intended Teal to have another sort of uh, act I I intend for Teal to have acts beyond that I know, I, I realize as I'm saying this some people have not read the Normal Combat zine and also have not read the Reforging Olympus Uh, ebook you should do both of those right away (laughs) because there are sort of very real and very important stakes uh in both of those pieces of narrative um so i I think you know i largely leave the new incarnations of characters to be something to be discovered by myself I, i don't necessarily know all the waypoints for a character or how many different incarnations they will have um A lot of the necessity of characters being recreated, recycled, rejuvenated has to do with the nature of toy manufacturing, right? I cannot make a new sculpt for every single character that I come up with. I have to utilize the parts that are already in the ecosystem. And so that limitation, a very real finite limitation, has made me come up with very creative ways in that I can use characters multiple times but not sell the exact same figure uh, whenever there's a milestone for that person. This limitation uh, is not unlike in early video games when they had, you know, some of those games are 68 kilobytes big and all they could do to add additional characters was do a sprite swap or a color difference or minor, you know, changes to the pixels. And that spawned some really creative ideas. We have the rivalry between Ryu and Ken, you know? Think of all the, uh, the interesting creative choices that those limitations uh, gave birth to, right? It, it's pretty compelling stuff. With regards to Lime, this is a popular question I get from time to time. Lime is not coming back. Um, you know, uh, I really don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to spend time with me in this fantasy world, right? And, and Lime is essentially an avatar for myself. Um, that was kind of necessitated in the inception of Nice of Slice because myself and Nikki and Cade were on camera. There was a very real attachment to these people you were watching YouTube videos of and then going and reading a comic book about or buying a toy about. So there was a sort of necessity to attach myself to this brand in the early days. And I frankly could not wait to kill off that character and never have to deal with myself again uh, I, I am cursed with living with myself every waking second of the day so uh not something i'm eager to do in this wonderful fantasy world i've constructed as well lime is about as dead as it gets next question comes from lane thanks for making 2021 an awesome year for toy collectors what is something that you can't experience ever again that you have been able to partake in or was formative in getting you to where you are today Specifically, what is an experience that has been lost to time, yet opened your perspective or kickstarted a passion for you? Uh, I'm not sure this answers the question exactly, but I do have this sort of counterfactual timeline in my brain, uh, and that is one where I don't actually go to college, and I don't sort of uh, stay in the restaurant industry, but rather... I start buying and reselling toys and going to flea markets and setting up and just grinding away like that. Uh, I was sort of, you know, 20 years old at a really crucial time in the collector world in that things were incredibly cheap and plentiful. There was all this 80s and 90s stuff that was circulating the secondary markets like flea markets and places like that, that that I would pick up all the time, super cheap. And occasionally I would sell some things to pay rent, but, you know, it was ingrained in me that I had to go to college and get a degree and enter the professional world or I would not amount to anything. And while I'm glad I took the path I took, I mean, I never would have gotten a job at New Line Cinema without a college degree, never would have worked at the other places that followed that, Um, I think there is a sort of alternate universe where I don't do that stuff and, you know, I just sort of am a toy reseller. I think I actually could have earned a lot more money very early on and probably would have launched Toy Lines, uh, you know, earlier than that. You got to think also, KB was still around at this time. Toys R Us were still around at this time. Um, Toy Works were still around. So I could have been going and buying and stockpiling a lot of toys and kind of, you know, made my mark as a reseller very early on. Now, ultimately, I'm glad I, I didn't take that path. I think that the skills I learned, you know, in licensing and, man, you know, sort of designing and manufacturing toys on a mass level uh, were really, you know, invaluable to me in, in the course I took. But I, I do think that there is this uh, alternate universe that exists out there where, where that happened. I would also say that couldn't happen nowadays, or at least it's much more arduous, uh, because you know those retail chains don't exist anymore. Specifically, KB and, and Toyworks. Some of the stuff that was clearanced out there goes for buku bucks right now. You know, I always tell the tale of the Kenner Alien uh, appearance at Toyworks that was three for five dollars. Like, man, that <laughs> that stuff is worth gold now. So. Uh, you know, just an interesting sort of counterfactual. Next question from Ben Butwin. Uh, have you played with any of the teenage engineering pocket operators? If so, what models would you recommend? Uh, I have. I do own the Speak version. Um, the Speak version is primarily for sampling. Uh, but it does have a really good drum kit on it as well. I believe the other ones also sample, but I haven't been hands-on with them, so don't take my word for it. Um, so generally I like teenage engineering Uh, obviously I recently purchased the OP1 which is a really robust amazing system that I'm still sort of learning Um, I, I have a hard time recommending the pocket operators unless you are familiar with sequencing and already have some sort of musical ability I found it as a complete amateur, to be very obtuse and hard to learn. And in fact, I don't use it very much because the process of programming a drum sequence is really clumsy and not very intuitive for playing live music, which is 99% of the music I do is just sort of improvised and live. Um, Other people may have a different experience with it, but, you know, the, the sort of charm of teenage engineering is that They give you devices where it's not explained and you kind of discover things. But I find if you don't have a know-how in programming or music, uh, it remains a sort of brick that you can't really unlock without watching a lot of YouTube tutorials and practicing very hard. Alternatively, what I would suggest if somebody is curious about making music in a very easy way and a way that's much more fun. I would say start with the Korg K Oscillator, and there are, uh, they run about 100 to $200. They are touch screen, and you s- simply tap out a beat to effects, to drums, to um, sound effects like uh, beats, and, and it's a very, very easy way to record uh, just sort of simple songs and backing tracks. If you've ever watched the live streams and you hear a very fun sort of funky drum beat that's going on, that's the K Oscillator. It's super easy to kind of utilize and program right out of the box with no musical experience. You can start writing songs and have a lot of fun with it. There's an older version, I think from the late 90s, that is just a square. It's like a giant brownie with a touch screen. That's the one I have. There's a newer version that's sleeker and kind of jelly bean shaped and has a lot more sound effects and bells and whistles. I haven't yet tried that one. People seem to prefer the older one. Um, So I would say, you know, if like, if you're very technically savvy, absolutely go for a teenage engineer. If you're not, but you still wanna, you know, play around with songs and have some fun, go for the K-Oscillator, stick to Korg brand. I find their stuff is really quite exceptional. Um, oh, and you do need headphones to sort of hear what's happening with the, the, uh, older K oscillator. There's not a, uh, onboard speaker. So just a small note. Okay. Next question. Isaac Carmen, will the 3d files be part of the new action figure of the millennium? Happy holidays. Uh, I think so. And I do know I did not post a 3D file for December yet, as you guys have probably pieced together. It's been an insanely busy time for me, um, rushing out orders and, and things like that. Uh, I will post December's figure. Uh, I will make 3D files available in 2022. Uh, I don't know if it will be sort of monthly or bimonthly or every two months. Um, I'll figure that out and uh, keep you posted. Here's the reality... The 3D files get like three or four people that download them out of 200 patrons. So I'm happy to do them. I'm glad that people like them and enjoy them. This is a very small fragment of the audience that seem to care or have the means in which to print them. So uh, if I approach the subject of 3D file downloads with any uh, diminished enthusiasm or I'm a little slow to put them out, that's the reason why, because it's... It's sort of a fun thing for very few people that I'm happy to do, but it is not something that's being sort of utilized by the entire audience. Next question from Paul Weyer. Is it safe to say that Fred Foods is not planning any new classic nights? Well, so there's Fred Foods and then there's me in the real world. Fred Foods is absolutely still churning out classic nights, right? They need armed mascots to guard all of their stores, especially as conditions worsen, as, uh, you know... Supplies and food become more scarce. Their teeming quick service restaurants are going to be easy targets for civil unrest. So Fred Foods in the world of Nights of the Slice is continuing to crank out classic nights. Now, the story of Nights of the Slice has shifted from that focus, right? We started off with Nights of the Slice Classic as the good guys. They were who we were following in the overall narrative. And seven years out, we're in a very different place, right? We have Rex on the run, hiding out with international criminals. We have Vaughn floating somewhere in the ocean. We have Saima God knows where. Um, All these elements have been scattered to the wind. And Fred Foods is occupying a place that is very different from where they were at the start of this story seven years ago. So they're still going to be, you know, having new... Franchises open up and thusly new localized nights that represent that district or that neighborhood. Uh, From a production standpoint, for me, I still plan to make classic nights. I got a couple queued up um, for next year, and we just might see some old styles come back in a new way. Next question from Charles. I had him, but let him go. Is anything like Britain Knight or a tampoed slime night ever going to come back? So, I'm not going to reissue either of those characters. I don't, you know, it's very rare that I reissue a specific style. Uh, There are certainly plans for tampoed characters in the future, but here's my rule when it comes to tampo printing, which, for those who don't know, tampo is a sort of heat stamp that puts a sort of logo or an icon on a character. If you see an emblem or, you know, a very smooth, flat, uh, decorative... Uh, deco on a figure, that is likely a tampo print. They add, a, you know, a significant amount of cost to apply to figures. A lot of the Glios and Onel makers use a lot of tampos in many different ways. I go a different direction. Tampo prints are sort of only utilized for me if uh, it makes sense for the character, right? I'll never just stamp a tampo On a figure just to make it look pretty or something like that there has to be a intrinsic reason for having that so if we look at the classic Britain Knight we have this smile you know there's actual teeth on the figure there's the X on his chest Um, if we look at Saxon you know there's a deco there Um, Slime Knight obviously designed by Michael Scottum so you know The use of tampos is certainly something I will do in the future, but all of those ones you listed, those are very specific to the character, right? There was a a real functional need to utilize the tampo printing process in order to bring that character to life in a deeper way. Now, if you'll indulge me, I will give you a little bit of why I choose a simpler philosophy for my action figure making. Uh, when it comes to paint deco, tampo prints, complexity of designs, things like that. So when I was first starting out in the toy industry, which would have been uh, almost exactly 20 years ago, if you can believe it, in 2002, um, I came across a line called Skyman by Atlantic. Atlantic, you might know as having made sort of uh, kind of cheap-looking um, toy soldiers things like that and this was a line from 1978 I don't know how I came across it but I sort of found all these pictures online Um, there was not an abundance of these in the secondary market so I, I actually couldn't get a hold of one but I was transfixed by this line and I was transfixed by it because it didn't utilize any paint these were semi articulated figures think of them as sort of big toy soldiers I think that's fair and you have this titular character with a jetpack, look kind of like Flash Gordon or Adam Strange. Uh, then you had all these crazy aliens that look like a precursor to Power Lords or something Wayne Barlow would do. And uh, I became obsessed with this line. And, and the thing is, it looks very detailed and very colorful, but there's no paint. And how they did that was they simply shot different parts of the character in different colors and then matched it together so you have his sort of chest armor and his underwear is shot in red his face is shot in a flesh or a peach color and his body's in yellow you put those pieces together and it convinces you that this is a fully fleshed out fully painted character but it's actually not it's just how they sort of did the tooling and the uh, separations so I was so enamored with this, I actually like had this, you know, uh, this fanciful idea that maybe I could buy the tools for Skyman, which, you know, as I would go and work in Hong Kong and mainland China, I would realize what a folly that is because the majority of old tooling just ends up dumped in Hong Kong Harbor. Um, But I I really, I saw something with this line and it's, you know, it's avoidance of paint, but it's profound presentation. You know, they really managed to do something uh, just completely mesmerizing. My obsession with Skyman served me well at my very next job, which was working for Jazzwares. And at Jazzwares, at that time, the sole focus was what is the unit cost of a figure and how low can you get it, Right? Uh, Jazwares' business model at the time was we might make action figures uh, that are on the store shelves competing with something like Marvel Legends but we're gonna make figures that cost less and are a better value buy, and so people will gravitate towards that rather than spend you know twelve fifteen dollars on a Marvel legend um, so the imperative was you make these things as cheap as possible and my obsession with Skyman and the molded plastic colors versus paint really uh, inspired me to sort of replicate that with Mega Man. So, if he's a light blue and a dark blue color, we can shoot dark blue parts in a separate mold. We can shoot the light blue in that base plastic color. We can save a ton on, on deco. And it, it happened to, those instincts served me well. And we also happen to have a character that really lends itself well to that as well. So all these years later, uh, as I find myself with the ability to essentially create any character I come up with, however complex it may be, I still adhere to those philosophies and those examples. Because I do think limitation ultimately makes for more creative expression. And so I don't lean on gimmick plastics. I don't lean on tampo prints. I don't lean on a ton of paint decos. It's great when I do it, like if we look at John Killknife, which is a double-sprayed figure. Every inch of him is covered in paint. Uh, That's a very fun, memorable character. But the majority of my stuff adheres to this philosophy of simplicity. And, uh, you know, whether or not those are the right aesthetics or I've made the right decision for my business, I am still here seven years later. So something must be going okay. Uh, So just to give you a little background and a little piece of insight into, you know, these decisions, um, you know, hopefully that all makes sense. Okay next up we got our good friend Valverde. I really like Pangea Island a few years back. I said to myself I'm going to stop collecting anything that isn't future sci-fi in an effort to limit my over-expanding collection. But I'm constantly finding myself shopping for critters, non-dinosaurs, for this island. Which leads me to the question, I imagine a huge piece of artwork with all kinds of animals slash things that live on Pangea you find yourself wanting to add more to a world but have to curtail that to focus on a main character slash story uh, slash figure release? Uh, And do you come to peace with that or would you prefer to explore more in the artwork you create slash pay to be created? So, um, you know, I, I, I feel very satisfied with the amount of time I spend with certain segments of Knights of the Slice. In many ways, the releases and the narrative are tailored to my attention span, which is very, very short. <laughs> so, um, a lot of the rollout and a lot of the time spent on these locations directly correlates to my own personal interest level. And when I'm starting to wean out of interest for, you know, a particular set piece, uh, that's usually when I shift things and jump to somewhere else. So. Uh, I'm over overall, you know, pretty satisfied with the amount of time I get to spend with these things. The other time, the other thing to consider is, um, I can always go back, and I can spend as much time elaborating these areas and these settings. Uh, you know, as long as I'm still breathing, there is a, a sort of assurance that I will get back to that that place, and we will have some more fun there. So I don't really feel. Uh, you know, a pressure that everything has to be all-encompassing during, you know, uh, a sort of one- or two-month cycle of storytelling. I know we're going to get back there. I know I will have ample opportunity in the future to kind of uh, further expand these things. So I don't really look at it as, um, you know, there being a finite sort of deadline that I have to meet. And after that, there, there can be no more... Uh, Pangea Island world building there can be no more Harbor Noir world building etc so uh, I feel pretty good about that um, I, I definitely would love to have a kind of giant scientific graph of all the different creatures on Pangea Island uh, but that is something I would want to spend a lot of time with and really think about the, uh, the uh, entomology of everything and, and have much more of a sort of scientific basis for these things next up we got a question from jeremy price in your last podcast your comment when will it end in reaction to some of the latest cinematic marvel sorry marvel cinematic universe editions resonated with me i've been ignoring anything by them lately without really noticing and i've been hearing the same thing from other people i'm wondering if their output is starting is getting oversaturated or maybe they are spreading their resources too thin why do you think it's becoming stale for many of us and to be clear I don't care. I don't mind if I lose interest, uh, and they don't win me back. It's just interesting, especially if it relates to you. Um, you know, I I think so. Look, obviously, I talk a lot of shit about uh, MCU, uh, but I am a consumer of the MCU, right? Not uh, not today, and you know, I'm very far behind at this point. But uh, I have enjoyed Marvel films, and I think that. As an entertainment vessel, there's nothing wrong with enjoying these things. You know, as a kid growing up during the great drought uh, in the 80s, I never would have believed that the biggest film franchise in the world would be based on the Marvel Universe characters that I loved and studied so much. Uh, I I did, we visited a close friend recently and his daughter is obsessed with the MCU and they both were chiding me for, you know, uh, my hatred of the MCU, but as I said to them, I'm fine with people who like this as entertainment. And more to the point, who gives a fuck what I think? No, none of you should, like, tailor your life and your worldview around my opinions. I'm nobody. Uh, but as I said to them, uh, I'm fine with people who like these as entertainment. I'm bothered by people who like the MCU as a religion. And i do think it is a religious uh fanaticism that propels and surrounds the mcu now why is that why is that my my sort of view of this well i think if you believe in neoliberalism and you believe in the global world order of capitalism the mcu is the pinnacle of human achievement and i'm i'm not really saying that cynically i do think this is a, you know, trillion-dollar franchise, uh, built out of IP that was worth next to nothing at the time comparatively to its its sort of value today, and it imply it, it, it employs a nation state of artisans, craftsmen, directors, three uh, D, you know, gurus. Uh, just think in terms of. The army of people that have to go into producing the Disney Plus shows or the theatrical films, this is a nation state in and of itself. Uh, If you think of the way Disney has exuded their power in Washington, how they have rewritten copyright laws to favor themselves. If you ever want to learn more about that, look into the copyright for Winnie the Pooh and the expiration process for that and how Disney literally lobbied and won the right to change how the rule of law is in the United States. So when I, when I sort of look at the MCU and how it is, how it came to be, it is sort of inextricable from modern-day global capitalism. And if you buy into... The premise of a global market under capitalism and it has treated you well and you have gained comfort and you have a nice bedrock of savings and you own your own house uh then you probably don't look too critically at something like the size of disney and the mcu it's probably much more entertaining for you than it is for me and you're probably happy that every time you see a marvel film they don't really challenge anything in the status quo You know, I think about Marvel in the 70s and even in the 60s and the introduction of a character like Black Panther and what Stanley and and the cohort there were trying to do. They were actually trying to look very hard at ideas like race and uh, racism and the culture at large. You know, these these people were, in some respects, counterculture and they were pushing these very radical ideas. And all of that has been wrung out of the storytelling. And maybe that's a good thing. You know, it's a much more smooth-brained experience. You're not really being challenged too much when you step into, you know, one of these series or one of these films. But the, the acute problem that I think they're running into really post-Avengers Endgame is that this is all perfunctory, right? Every, every single piece that they've done so far feels mandatory and like it's just really paint by numbers. And so you have little blips on the radar that are interesting and, and slightly different, something like WandaVision. Uh but ultimately even that uh has to have the big CGI showdown at the end, right? <laughs> that's that's what I mean when I say perfunctory. Like this ground is already laid, the pattern is there, there is no real deviation or subversion from What it needs to be i think also there is an accelerating effect happening with disney um you know they they were sort of coming off pre-pandemic they were coming off uh a couple years where star wars ceased to work right it was a diminishing return even if uh force awakens you know you can have your opinions about the film uh, it delivered at box office and it delivered more importantly in the licensing aspect and then every new Star Wars film after that was a diminishing return. Each of them sort of producing less at box office and producing less uh, in the sort of licensing world. And they started to see an atrophy. And I think somewhat in response to that, the Marvel side of things got ramped up even more. So we had more films, more Disney Plus series. Uh, apparently there's a Hawkeye show. I did not even fucking know that. Like, I, it's so outside of, uh, you know, my wheelhouse at this point uh but i I think it's safe to say there's probably more disney content than there are hours left in my life to sort of watch right and i think that people are starting to become wise to that that there is now more to see than we have minutes left in our existence possibly on this planet so even if you you're not sort of like conscious of that, you are absolutely subconscious of that, that there is this feast in front of you that your stomach will never be able to handle, and that's where this kind of slight tinge of nausea comes from. I, I think also that sometime in the 90s, at the end of history, as it's called, there was a, a sort of strategic decision that... Um, there was not going to be real progress in terms of universal anything in this country. You know, you weren't, they were positioning to sort of gut Social Security, which they have not been able to do, but that is very much still something up on the chopping block, despite how popular and how life saving it is. Um, I think that there was a very conscientious choice that. You can do whatever you like within the realm of entertainment. uh, But you're not going to see sort of real change. You're not going to have uh, a meaningful uh, solution to immiseration. And 30 years later, I think that that is what we're seeing, right? Uh, The gears of change and of progress seem to be halted to a complete stop. We, We can't even get very meaningful, very important things uh, to the American public. We, like, there's no reason we shouldn't all be getting rapid tests sent to us at no cost. There's no reason they should be costing $35 and there's a real scarcity to go and pick these things up. This is like, okay, we have a a nation where a certain population do not want to be vaccinated. So testing seems to be incredibly important just to keep the gears moving. But we're seemingly unable to enact something like that. But we have an entire buffet on Disney Plus that you can watch at any time. And I don't think these are sort of spurious phenomena. I think these are interlinked. I think that that is the proposition of America. And thusly, the proposition of the global West. It is that you will have endless fantasies to watch at the touch of a button for the low price of $12.99. However, your basic sort of needs as a human being are not going to be met, and that is not the responsibility of those in charge. And so as I see conditions worsen, and I know certainly for my family, conditions have worsened. I, you know, I'm in a relatively comfortable position. Uh, other people that I'm immediately related to, that is very much not the case. As I see conditions worsen and I see more and more disney plus streaming series be announced i can't help but think that that is the proposition now this is what we are offered in this world order you get unlimited entertainment but you get nothing beyond that and maybe i would feel differently if that unlimited entertainment dared to show that that misery right to try to confront that misery like the premise of the Avengers are these are the these are essentially living walking gods, right? Maybe some of them don't have superpowers, but these are the best of humanity. that's That's the entire idea here. And the fact that you know, none of them want to combat any of these very real material problems that uh, that we see before us just makes it all sort of ring hollow for me. And you could point to something like Invincible or the boys and say, Hey, these are the anti-avengers. The, these are flipping the idea of, you know, Superman or you know, a, an, an alien god or heroics on its on its end. It, it's the complete opposite. These are subversive programs, but they're really not either. They're, they're still plugged into this super system. You know, they are simply inverting all the qualities of something like a Superman. They're not actually addressing what are the very real material issues that are surrounding people. If you go back to, you know, Marvel in the 60s and 70s, Black Panther punching a KKK guy in the face on a cover that was on newsstands everywhere, I mean, that was a very real sort of visceral reaction to the material conditions of people's lives, right? Now you flash forward to 2020, 2021, you watch... The Falcon and the the uh, Winter Soldier. And it's like, uh, what a completely spineless take on present-day racism. Like, I, I suffered through that entire show. And they kind of tiptoe into, okay, you know, Falcon is black. He can't get a home loan. Uh, you know, X, Y, and Z. They really, there might have been writers who really wanted to kind of twist those st- screws and go into it. But at the end of the day, the the crux of the series is Falcon and Winter Soldier scolding members of essentially the UN and telling them to do better. And and that is the, (laughs) the, you know, that is the finale, that they're going to scold world leaders and that's going to fix things. That is the super heroics. It, It is absurd, right? I mean, if if. Winter Soldier and Falcon were heroes, they would have beheaded those world leaders. Parody, parody, not actionable. But that would have been the path of somebody truly trying to change the conditions and be heroic to the people that are miserated out there. So maybe I've pondered this orb way too much. Maybe none of this makes any sense. I've probably lost uh, quite a few listeners uh, over this one. But, uh, you know, that's sort of... My take on this. I, I am utterly uninterested in the proposition of just endless, endless series and movies. And especially with none of it having any real teeth or hooks into the real world that we are sort of experiencing. That's not to say I want to fucking watch Nomad Land over and over again, right? Like, that's a pretty miserable experience. But. I, you know, I do want some sense of urgency and storytelling. And, you know, let me give you an example of what I think does this really well. Night Raiders, I hope that's the name of it, God, um, from Alex Zirit and Dave Baker, I believe. This is a really, really colorful, beautiful book that they've done together. And it absolutely lays out real-world politics, but in a crazy, entertaining, gory, over-the-top story but there are there's weight to it it makes sense we see the struggle of these characters in our day-to-day lives and that is such a fantastic piece of work uh, largely overlooked by the mainstream and you know that would make a sort of really subversive and interesting take on these genres so you know I, I don't want to sort of be here just like throwing stones and saying oh I would do it better oh I w-, you know, Oh, there's too much. Uh, there's too many options. Like there are people out there doing storytelling well in a way that is reflective of the horrors we see before us, which I think is, you know, that's important to human development. We have to digest the bad parts of what's in our real world. We have to use storytelling to, to process that to give it a focus otherwise we are sort of stuck in place so you know all that is a, a very long diatribe I hope it made an inkling of sense but uh, yeah I'm with you I, you know obviously the majority of people on earth are not feeling this way because Disney is more profitable than ever and there's probably more people watching these shows and movies than ever before I mean Spider-Man just set box office uh, opening records so obviously we're in the minority, but I do think it is, it's is—it's a very real phenomenon. We're all feeling, we're, we're atrophied by this. It's, it's too much and it is sort of tone deaf, it's ringing hollow. So, you know, what is the answer to all this? It's what I always go to. Support whatever independent artists you can. Find people who are doing interesting work that are outside of the mainstream and subscribe to them where you can, if it's through Patreon or a service like Coffee. Um, you know that is the counterbalance to all of this, because I, I do think you have a legitimate sort of you're articulating something that that's very real. And uh, as always, you know I think it's going to be the independent artists that that provide uh, a counterbalance to it. Of course, everything in the last segment is going to sound really silly when I accept an offer from Disney to buy Knights of the Slice in a few years. But anyway, moving on to John Emmett with our next question. He's got a question that's on everybody's mind here. You've got soft good jackets and shirts on lock. Are you considering entering into the incredible and mysterious realm of action figure pants? Uh, John, I wish. I wish I could. And I've attempted these things. But there's a, there's a distinct problem with pants and action figures at this scale and that is namely how you how you essentially affix them at the waist because you cannot have a pant that is just a simple cut at the top at this scale there has to be some kind of spandex or some kind of rubber band to hold them in place there's there's no sort of you know gravity will take over and these pants will not sit the way you want to on such a small scale so you have to have some kind of inner wire uh, or some, you know, some sort of stitching to kind of close them off at the top. Now that is problematic in several ways. One, that adds a lot of bulk around the waist and it does tend to end up making them look like they're wearing a diaper or smuggling, you know, packets of cocaine in their belt loop. The other problem is how do you then get those pants onto a figure? If you sew off the top so that it fits nice and tight around the waist, you're likely not going to be able to get the hips over that. There's going to be ripping and tearing. Uh, the movement of the legs also provide additional challenges to how pants at this scale sort of sit. So it has not been something I've been successful at. Um, I think it is kind of a fool's errand in many respects. If if I was making a 1 scale figure that was more articulated and much thinner, I could probably pull it off. But uh, because, you know, largely Knights of the Slice are kind of sculpted and not intended for outerwear, um, it is, you know, it's gonna be something very difficult, if not impossible, to achieve. So, um, you know, very valid question, something I've spent a lot of time thinking and planning about. Uh, I do not believe there's a solution uh, to make this happen, unfortunately. Next up, a question from Ian Amling. I got my first Spiral Zone figure this week. There's no question associated with this post. Just wanted to let you know how stoked I am about it. Happy holidays, my friend. Thank you, Ian. Same to you. My question would be, did you get a Spiral Zone Japan or a Spiral Zone U.S. version? That is a very, very crucial question. There's an enormous difference between the two lines. I happen to love them both. But they are very different creatures. So I'd love to hear what you got and uh, from which maker, whether it's Bandai or Tonka. And uh, let's post some pics. I want to see what you got. Absolutely. But, you know, I, I, a line I love dearly. I've tried to make several sort of nods to it in Knights of the Slice. And uh, I'm happy you managed to track one down. Next question, and I believe our final question here from Philip Barrara. Roger Williams teaches in his book of animation that one must turn off music and distractions and face silence in order to stay focused. Is this a sentiment that you share, or do you have other ways that help you stay focused? Um, I mean, it's such a subjective thing. You know, I'm inclined to to tell Roger Williams to fuck off. (laughs) Um, It's different for everybody, right? If you are an artist that does not have issues churning out work if you dedicate, you know, time every day to your craft, and you are able to have output, not success, I want to make a distinction here, being an artist is not about success, it is about output, it is simply about doing it, doing it badly for many years, if you have output, and you do that with heavy metal blaring over your speakers, I don't see a fucking problem, right, Uh, if you need a zen-like environment, and you seal yourself off in a isolation chamber before you put pen to paper, then that's fine too. You know, humans are so varied, and all of our brains are wired differently. I can't imagine why a creator would want to, like, lay out something you know, such a blanket statement like that. It seems silly to me. For me, personally, in my process, it varies on my mood. There are some days when I need to go out in the workshop, albeit if it's freezing cold, doesn't matter, and I need to hear nothing at all. I need to hear the snow falling on trees. And sometimes that is a very great sort of way to inspire me and get my creative ideas flowing. Other times I need music, absolutely, or I need a podcast in the background. I need to hear human voices clucking away. It it really, it it absolutely varies. I also at my house, uh, it is much less frequent these years, but uh, historically, I have run my own life claw- uh, sorry, life drawing classes, right? So I arrange for a small group of friends. Everyone comes over. We hire a model. And in that situation, I have to be thinking about vibes, right? I got to keep the vibe positive. I got to keep it moving. I got p- to keep people really inspired and working and, and try to get almost a trance-like state. You know, I want this to feel otherworldly in a lot of respects i want people to to lose time while they're doing this uh, we were fortunate enough to actually do a life drawing class at my house um, a few weeks ago everybody was tested upon arrival uh, so you know we had a about as safe as an environment as you possibly could have and this is the first time in probably close to three years that we've done it but it was wonderful it was cathartic it was exactly what we all needed And in this situation, uh, we have music blaring. We have very loud music going on and sort of affecting everybody. And the playlist is varied, but a lot of it is sort of instrumental stuff. A lot of just kind of stuff like Battles or Ravi Shankar or Philip Glass. Like, uh, you know, just sort of stuff that's not lyric. Lyrically driven, you know, not singer-songwriter stuff. It's more about mood and vibe, and it seems to be a formula that really works for the people that attend. I mean, I we sort of lay out all our drawings afterwards, and I see some wonderful stuff. I think people are doing some of their best work in this environment. So, you know, I I think it it really varies. I I I, I take umbrage with This idea that, you know, this one artist's process is is the universal key to everything. It doesn't make any sense to me. But um, very good question. And thank you for that. And I think this wraps us up. I think we are done here. Uh, Merry Christmas to everybody. I hope uh, you're somewhere safe and having fun. Uh, I do not know what 2022 is going to bring. I know I am very excited about what I have planned for Knights of the Slice, an action figure of the Millennia Club. I thank you guys for your support. If you are a patron currently, you only have a couple days left to sign up for the full year and get the bonus 13th figure. You can, of course, sign up full year in January, but you will only be getting 12 figures in 2022, not the uh, bonus one. So bear that in mind. Thank you to everybody who signed up for full years. Those are tremendously helpful for me. And uh, what else do we got to say? Well, I did watch Matrix Resurrections. I think I'll talk about that on the next Dostazapod. I have some thoughts there. And other than that, I think the only thing left to say is pizza out.